Welcome to the Oriole. I'm Andrea Bacigalupo. I'm an artist and a sculptor, and I created this podcast to give women artists of all ages and stages a platform to talk about their lives as artists. I was inspired by something Judy Chicago once said about the lack of the recorded history of women artists. With each episode of this podcast and its archive, we hope to fill in the void. Interviews are published on the last Thursday of the month, bringing you the intriguing stories of women artists and expanding the archive of the Oriole. Coming up is Laura Van Duren. Laura Van Duren is an artist, teacher, and the Peter Volkus family archivist. Laura speaks with clarity about her life and about being an artist which made our interview wonderful and deeply interesting. She's very engaged in making art, and she's engaging to listen to. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, which was a lot. Testing one, two, three. Testing with Laura Van Duren. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here for this interview today, having me in your studio. And I know that we talked about some questions beforehand, And so I was wondering if maybe we could just dive in. Sounds good to me. Okay. So in terms of a little background or biographical information, Mm -hmm. I was wondering about your name or your maiden name, your birth name, your given name. That's how I like to start my interviews. Yeah, I, let's see. I don't think my name is any really that special. Like I don't have some great story behind it, but I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania And everybody, you know, in my family were either they worked on the railroad or in glass factories. And I, you know, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh is like sort of the tip of Appalachia. And uh, it always cracks me up when I go back to Pittsburgh and everybody calls me, my family calls me Law Lee. My middle name is Lee. And it just kind of unravels me. But (laughs) that is, it's Laura Lee. And I don't know that it's connected to anything in particular. And my maiden name was Drum, but I love my my ex-husband's last name. I think it just, it, and plus it goes with my artwork and my career is already kind of established. So I feel like, you know, I'm not saying it's big guns or anything, but, you know, I want to, I'm keeping my, the married name that I have now. Yeah, Even though I'm, I'm divorced now, but, you know, I, I really like how the ring of my name is now. It's nice. Laura Van Duren. Yeah. Well, the sound, when I think of drum, it to me, that sound goes down. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about how sound, you know, like when I named my daughter, I, it, it sounded like a song. And so I guess those things are important to me. Do you mind if I ask, what's your daughter's name? Andrea. Oh, it is? Yes. Like mine. Like yours, but I think yours pr- is pronounced a little different. Andrea. Yeah. Well, I was married to somebody who's Dutch, so that's a was a Dutch, I've heard that from a Dutch person. Yeah, makes sense. It's a beautiful name. You're lucky to have it. Oh, thank you. So is your daughter. How about a nickname? Well, you said Laura Lee or? No, I don't, I don't really go by a nickname. Mm -hmm. Although I, I was, when I was renting the house before a little boy next door always called me Lola, which I thought was so cute because he couldn't say my name. Yeah. 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 Very cute. So how did you come to be an artist? Oh, I knew from the get-go I was an artist. I was always drawing. 
like from the time I could pick up a pencil, it was so natural to me to draw. Hmm. And so for me, it was just, I knew. And everybody around me kind of reinforced that. So it became, I would say, the one thing I felt good about myself with, you know, that. Mm -hmm. And it also became a refuge. Yeah, my, my upbringing was pretty rough. And so I would hide in drawing a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's still something I hide in. And, you know, as you can see, my sketchbook is like, you can carry it anywhere. And I have a ton of them. And, you know, before the pandemic, I mean, I was drawing, I was going through one book, you know, every six months. Mm -hmm. So it, mm. it's a record of just everything I notice, everything I love, everything I hear, see, you know, and I'm recording the world around me. And I also use it as a process of ideas. A lot of my ideas come from a drawing. So it's very foundational for me. It always has been, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, it just lights up my brain. So I always knew I was an artist. As a child, would you draw uh, sort of in all situations, in, indoors, outdoors? Did you carry a uh, 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 a sketchbook with you or was it something you, like you said you would sort of retreat to and I well I pretty much you know I would draw on paper wherever I could get it specifically drawing on a lot of different things popsicle sticks I got in trouble a lot for drawing on you know desks at school I mean so I was drawing on anything I could That's get my so hands great. on <laughs> yes yeah so it's interesting somehow the idea of drawing on popsicle sticks to me does relate to your work yeah. You know, those materials that right. even at a young age, you were just using whatever materials felt right to you or just were available. Or Exactly. And now I'm drawing with thread with a, you know, a sewing machine from the 1920s. Or actually, it's 1902. I wow. can correct that myself there. Somebody had just told me that it's a machine from 1902. Wow. And a dear friend lent it to me during the pandemic. I had been going to her house and... I really see the sewing machine as a drawing tool. And you can see in the work that I'm, you know, I'm sewing with really thick thread that you sew shoes with. So it really becomes line. And I'm using the metal, twisted metal as, you know, the formation of line as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And is sewing something that, that also that you grew up with? Oh, yeah. My mother was like, you know, a self-taught master seamstress <laughs> and she's still sewing at 90. Wow. I didn't really learn to sew from her. I was looking over her shoulder. But you know, YouTube is great for oh, yeah. learning to sew. And you know, when you're sewing art, it's a whole different thing than when you're fitting a pattern. And But yeah, right. I love to sew. Yeah. Yeah. I was, when you were talking about during the pandemic, have, you know, going through a, a sketchbook every six months, I was wondering about how the pandemic or COVID may have influenced or impacted your work in terms of materials. And also, you know, I read about your work being about the body. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, all of us having COVID affect our bodies. Yeah. I was wondering if there was anything specific you might have noticed about being in, about this time. Well, I will say, you know, my work before the pandemic. If you look over there, a lot of it is, you know, it's it's wood with the vinyl and the glycerin. And I was taking found 
furniture off the street, cutting it up and reassembling. And that's also related to the body as well, right? Mm-hmm. And the soap is related to the body. You know, you, you find that glycerin is in our makeup. It's in our food. It's, you can wash your body with it. You can also make dynamite with it, you know? Okay. So it has all these capacities and it swells and sweats like the body. And during the pandemic, I was in here a lot because mm. I was so down like everybody else. And, it, mm. you know, making was the one thing that would help kind of mask that pressure, that pain that that just wouldn't go away, you know. Mm-hmm. And also politically, there was just so much heat of what was going on and a lot of anger and, you know, for all of us. So what I started doing is I moved away from the dollar wood color and I started adding a lot of color mm-hmm. just to lend in my spirit. You know, mm-hmm. so this piece over here has a lot of, I would paint the wood and reassemble it. And then I started dyeing some of the glycerin. Uh-huh. Some is blue, some is orange. And also I was teaching ceramics during the pandemic completely online for Diablo Valley College. And so I started really playing more with intense glazes and getting texture that way. Also, I'm doing a lot of drawing on the ceramic itself. Yeah. You know, sort of these map-like qualities. Yeah. You know? So I, I would say that the pandemic really brought out more color for me just as a way to buoy my own spirit. Yeah. And I had a show uh, in San Francisco at Analog Gallery right in January. And, you know, it was kind of sad. Not many people saw it, but I had a chance to collaborate with these other artists. So it really inspired me too to like really move my work around in a way that maybe I hasn't, hadn't been doing before. Mm. Just because I think those other artists definitely influenced me and I them. And so there were a lot of good things, mm-hmm. despite the hell of the pandemic that yeah. came out of my studio practice. And I am curious about the glycerin in particular. How did you come to use glycerin? How did you find mm. that as a material? Oh, it's so interesting. So I was in grad school. And of course, I was always making work about the body. I started out in drawing and then went to ceramics after graduating from Carnegie Mellon University. And I totally went into ceramics and then casting bronze. And in grad school, you know, all that kind of, grad school just changes everything, right? Yeah. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And I really wanted to do something translucent with the body, but I really didn't, like, I didn't, wasn't sure what. Hmm. Um, I started working with the paper. You know, when you go to the doctor's office and you sit on this paper that they pull out. So I started collecting that and I liked the translucence of that. I started sewing that. And I was working with latex a bit and I just, none of it was exactly what I wanted. And I had photographed my mother. I'm like, you know, my mother's 90 now. I was photographing my mother's skin naked mm-hmm. and with all the little bumps and everything. And I was printing it on really thin mulberry, like Japanese mulberry paper and just hanging that. But that didn't do it either. So I was like, what can I find that will relate to the body? And I was in the shower at a friend's house and there was this bar of soap there. Oh my God. And I was like, oh my God, God, I can cast that. Oh my God. So that was, I graduated in 2017. Mm -hmm. 
And I've been doing that since 2015. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, it took me a long time to sort of understand the proper properties of glycerin. And for a long time, I was casting it without the skin, which is the vinyl. And what happens to it is it starts to, during the rainy season, it acquires the liquid from the environment. It's called agroscopic, I think. Mm. or hi, hi, I forget the name of it. Anyway, it starts to sweat and it'll drip, which is oh. wonderful. Oh. You know, it's just <laughs> like a body and it gets this sweaty wow. skin on it. And then when the what water goes away, it that skin dries and it's really beautiful. Every winter it reactivates. But then I started thinking about preserving the body, preserving mm. that sweating into... So it doesn't sweat anymore because I'm keeping it in glycerin. I mean, in vinyl. Mm-hmm. And also the saleability and the, you know, I want to make sure it has, you know, it's not going to fall apart on somebody. Yeah, longevity and yeah. permanence. Permanence. Mm-hmm. Although there is an impermanence to all of us. Yeah, there is. Everything's going to well, go away. It will, yeah. <laughs> but yes, we so, want it to last for some amount of time, though. Yeah. Well, it will last. It's, yeah. it's not going away. So, so were you casting it at first in different kinds of forms? Is that what you mean? Or yeah, I was yeah. casting it in different forms, like in wood, and then I was casting it in. Well, I did some slip casting, you know, with plast- plaster, like a ceramic slip cast, and then I started casting it onto ceramic pieces of mine mm-hmm. and making like these. I would take like paper and wrinkle that, mm-hmm. and then make a mold. Basically, for slip casting porcelain. Wow. And then I was casting glycerin in that. So it's had a whole iteration of, you know, finally coming to vinyl. And then do you buy glycerin sort of like in bulk? Yeah, or? I do. Okay. In big bulk. And yeah. it's not cheap. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm not willing to, like, process it myself with lye and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I buy, you know, natural organic from an oil base. So... You know, it's it's really clean and yeah. very clear when I get it. But then after I start working with it and I, I c- keep cooking it, the beautiful thing is it it will go back to the earth. Yes. Everything except the vinyl will go back to the earth. Yeah. Which is important to me. And I can't get around that part, the vinyl part, which bothers me. But mm. for now, that's where I'm at. Everybody thinks it's either glass or resin because it has that resin look to it Mm -hmm. and i love the fact that you know when you touch it it's a surprise because it looks like it's still liquid so there's this illusionary aspect to the work which is so much like life anyway right yeah (laughs) it's just yeah so i'm i'm really interested in that you know really everything a lot of things a lot of life we experience ups and downs all happens on the inside of us Mm -hmm. but we only see the outside Mm -hmm. so i'm really playing with this concept of this hidden world and bringing you know a a highlight towards the fragility versus the you know really this flexibility and strength that we have we have both we Mm -hmm. hold both yeah and that's for many aspects of our lives true Yeah. yeah Do you paint the wood on uh, of your found pieces, or do you find them like this as they are? 
You know, like the blue. Oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely manipulating. I'll sand, I'll paint. Sometimes I just leave it as is. Mm-hmm. And I really like leaving the connection points, like the dowels, you know, to show that there once was a history of something else there. Wow. Yeah. Very nice. And yeah. Okay, great. You know, I can hear some, some, and it just reminds me that we're in a, in a building of, of artists, right? right. We are. And um, so are, is, is this maybe a neighbor who's... Well, what's happening on the other side of my wall is Peter Volkus's studio is over there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he's passed. But, and I work for the Volkus family, archiving his work and his collection of other artists and letters. And they're preparing on the other side of this wall. They're getting his studio ready to become a residency. So they're cleaning things up and we've been shifting his, like yesterday, I was hosing down Peter's bucket sculptures. Wow. And, you know, moving things around. And we recently unveiled his giant paintings from the 1950s and 60s that have been in crates for a long time. And they're gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. So it's a very physical job. And then sometimes I'm just reading family letters or things he wrote to people and categorizing it in either a time period or with a person or just with his um, catalog. So that's been a huge influence on me, not only just visually, but just understanding this man who was so generous, who I never got to meet, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm learning who he was through everything he left behind, he and his wife. You know, it's just really such a gift to me. And the family, I feel like they've become my family. You know, I just really adore them. That's really wonderful. Yeah. I think about that. And then also sort of like in terms of your sketchbooks and and all your work. And yeah, it's kind of a roadmap to people's lives, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think about that in terms of what, you know, your own work and what you'll, you'll be leaving behind for your family or for your collectors? The, and... Definitely the big pile of sketchbooks. Mm-hmm. I, I only go through one book at a time. So you can follow the events of like, you know, here's, here's a drawing I did that I have two sketchbooks that I've worked through during the pandemic. But, you know, Apocalyptic Times is the first page. And you can mm-hmm. see Donald Trump spewing some anger there. And I drew every, like I was on Zoom every week. I'm in a drawing group because I I was part of, I was one of the founding members of Mercury 20 Gallery in Oakland. And we were always getting together every Friday as a drawing group Mm. in a cafe. Well, when the pandemic hit, we started meeting on Zoom. And so I started drawing everybody on Zoom. I think that's in the other one, but Another thing that I did during the pandemic is I would draw, like here you can see, this is when California was burning and everything was orange and drew a little self-portrait looking very dreary. I also did, I would draw every single debate and I would write down in speech bubbles what people wrote and I drew them, you know, just the highlights of the bizarre things that were said, (laughs) right? And so every single... You know, big events are in here. Are these, is this your own work or work yeah. you'd like to do? This is work I wanted to do. And you'll see the piece that came out is over here. Yeah. So it looks nothing like it, but it has that same essence. Sure. 
Yes. I knew sure. what wood I wanted to do, but the ceramic part, I wasn't sure how that was going to come together. But here's Kamala Harris. Yes. And are these ink and watercolor? Or? I, yeah, I pretty much work with just, you know, Coptic, pen, Coptic pens uh -huh. and Sharpies and watercolor and gouache and acrylics. You know, whatever's around. That, but oh. you can see this one I drew after the fact that's on the wall there. This was the show that I was in. But then there's all kinds of, like, things I want to make. You know, I'll just have... It's a record of my life, the world, and my art practice, pretty mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love to do little things like when we could be on buses, because I commuted a lot. I would just have, like, write down the things I heard on BART. And I also had a whole series of people on BART, you know, which I called On BART Again. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun. I just had to make sure I didn't, you know, offend anybody. Yeah. So it's, it's many things. Yeah. When you say On BART Again, does that mean, like, now that we're able to... Oh, no, that was prior to the Okay, pandemic. prior to the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So you'll have a... A pause in that kind of work. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. In and now, archive. you know, I will be teaching at Diablo Valley College in the fall, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, there's no BART to that. So I, that will end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of teaching, I read about how important teaching is to you. And yeah, yeah have you, did you always know you wanted to be a teacher? And how does it, how does teaching impact your work? I would say, you know, people would always, I would do workshops for people with ceramics yeah. and whatnot. And people would say, you're really good at teaching. You should do this. But I was raising three kids oh, yeah. pretty much on my own because yeah. the person I was married to was pretty much a workaholic. They just weren't there very much. And so I was juggling a lot, but I could work in the studio, which was in my garage at that point, and still run back and forth and, you know, deal with the lives of raising chil my children. So once I went back to grad school and after my divorce and I realized, well, obviously I had to get work and I started having opportunities to teach in grad school. And I realized like, you know what? I really like this. I love people. I love to be around people and I love to just share my passion and you know that aha when students are like, wow, this is really great. I've never seen this artist before. This is, you know. So for me, I love the research part of teaching. I love being with people. I love inspiring them. And I love really listening to them. Like for me, when I die, what's most important to me really is that I want to be able to be a really good listener. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of teaching. It's not just regurgitating a technique. And this is how you do it. It's also taking it, who is this individual and what, what path are they on? So that's really important to me. Mm. And, you know, there's always a few students that stick out. And I just, I love teaching. Yeah. Mm. And teaching has really changed now with the pandemic. That was a real challenge for me. Mm -hmm. But like I said before, I feel like it made me a better teacher. And then it forced me to look at all the little details that I need to include. Because I was teaching ceramics not on Zoom, but completely online, yeah. which had its challenges. And I only had six days to create two classes. So that I'm an adjunct and adjuncts get the last bits, mm. you know, so they had a need that came up and I jumped in and it was 
a huge event to <laughs> pull that together. Yeah, six days to create two classes, like two for the ceramics classes for the entire semester. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine how you did that. Well, Can we talk about some, it a little bit? Some yeah. people gave me, you know, I had some uh, other people's components for I would use other people's videos until I got up to speed with my own videos and Great. My, yeah, my own demos and mm -hmm. and then just everything in here in your own studio, setting up a camera and oh yeah, and I walking. did all that. It was crazy. Yeah. Like, do these lights work? You know, and having to get Wi-Fi in here. And so, yeah, it was very complex. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of like the challenge of problem solving. Yeah. I mean, that's what teaching is about, too. It's mm -hmm. problem solving. And sculpture is a huge problem solving practice. So, yeah, it kind of lights me up. You know, yeah. I might grumble a little bit, <laughs> but right. in the end, I'm still like, there's nothing boring about it. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. So do you think you'll be going back in person? Yeah, in yeah. fall. In the fall. Do you think there'll be any kind of blending or hybrid? You know, will you it, use any of your materials? I think I will definitely use what I have. And I really believe that it won't go away. And this is the reason. It really helped a lot of people who, for whatever reason... I mean, I had students who had a lot of difficulty mental illnesses that they normally wouldn't feel comfortable coming into a class or mm -hmm. students who had a real problem with obesity. They weren't as comfortable coming into class. People that were, you know, far away. I had students that were really, you know, on the East Coast. So it opened a world for people who normally who can't be in face-to-face mm -hmm. -face. I prefer face-to-face, -face, but I can do the other mm -hmm. too now. That's really wonderful, though, that it can reach people who wouldn't have normally, yeah, been right. involved yeah. Uh, in, in one capacity or another. Right. Yeah, that's great. Was there someone who made an impact on you as an artist, like as you were younger, a teacher, a parent, you know? I know that from reading your biography, you were at Carnegie Mellon in drawing. Sort of like, was there anyone who sort of, as you found your way there? Oh, totally. <laughs> so I was one of those renegade kids in class in high school that was pretty troubled. I had my art, but I was also, you know, kind of a partier and, and just running from a lot of pain in my own, you know. So I wasn't the best student at that time in high school. And I had an art teacher. Her name was Janice Hart. And she was a painter, and she will pull me aside and say, look, snap out of this, stop smoking pot, come to my class straight, you're a really talented artist, and you, you can do so much more. And that, you know, shocked me, because no one else was pulling me aside and saying, knock it off, you got a lot in you, we want to see you shine, and you can shine. You know, my mom was supportive in the arts, but she had her own stuff. You know, she was really struggling as a single mom. So Janice Hart helped me. You know, she's like, you got to apply to Carnegie Mellon. She said, I teach there in the education department and in it, not just education, but art education and in the um, fine arts department. So I applied, I got in and she then got me a job and really mentored me in, you know, just 
an amazing way. I just was another woman who really saw something in me that believed in me. And I've since lost touch with her. But every time I've gone back to Carnegie Mellon, I, I seek her out mm -hmm. and just say thank you again, you know. And, you know, she was an educator, too. And it's, it's a really a beautiful way to give back. But she listened, too. She was noticing. Yeah. She wasn't just, here's the demo and walking away, you know? Yes. She really cared. Yeah. Looking and listening. Yes. Yeah. So important in every relationship. I really believe that listening, really listening to people, not just thinking what you're going to say next, mm -hmm. but really trying to be in their shoes and reflect back what they're saying mm -hmm. and to really be the present is so important. And I know that's a catchword, like be present, but it's hard to do. And yeah. it's something, it's a goal of mine, you know, to really try and be, you know, uh, able to, to reflect back and hear people and understand. I don't always do it, mm -hmm. but it's something I'm very aware of that I want to I want to be that, you know? Yeah. I mean, and look where you are. Look at all of, all that you've done. And, and, and just to be in this place, Mercury 20, the Volcuses. I mean, yeah. Well, community is really important to me. Mm -hmm. I grew up pretty much a single child. Hmm. And I longed for community. I looked for it all places. But I've, I found it with Mercury 20. You know, the people were amazing. And they're still my best friends, you know? It's my, commu my art community. And also people from grad school at San Francisco State. There are some people that, you know, have we, we've really stayed close and we're in critique groups together. And that's great. It's been really rich. I feel like I landed on my feet in a beautiful way. And I'm really grateful for all the people that helped me land. In terms of this podcast or this interview, uh, some of these little nuggets I think are really important for artists, especially younger artists to hear, you know, a reminder of how important community is mm -hmm. and, you know, finding, if you can, a group where you can support each other. Oh, yeah. Have your group group critiques. And, yeah. and there's so many things that artists can rely on each other for. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. How did you find yourself in California? It makes me wonder. From, from Pittsburgh? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was married to a Dutchman, as I said, in Pittsburgh, and he was studying there. And his work brought us out here, and I was itching to get out of Pittsburgh anyway. And I've always had, I mean, you know, East Coasters often have like this idyllic view of California, you know. It's either that or they think, you know, that everybody over there is crazy. Right. <laughs> I, I, I got comments like that, like, oh, you're going to where the, the fruit and nuts, land of fruit and nuts. <laughs> yeah. you know? And they're still very conservative. But I feel like I belong here more. Like, Oakland is my town, you know. I just... <laughs> I love the diversity, and that's really important to me to kind of keep my heart open to, you know, unraveling my own white supremacy and, and really trying to be, teach myself and, and get better at, you know, just trying to undo what I was taught as a child in this very white-oriented world. That's so important. And, you know, I... It's another gift of, you know, teaching is that I get to interface with a lot of different people and the universities teach us and give us workshops on, you know, how to really embrace everyone and dismantle your own biases, all the hidden biases. So, you know, it's a journey. It's something I feel that's really important to me that I will be on forever. 
you know. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. That's great to hear myself also. So one of the things I mentioned is, you know, since the memories and experiences of women artists have not been widely recorded. I was wondering if you could share a story or, or anything really, some possible topics, you know, a particular show, an event, a film. You talked about your circle of friends. Are there, is there any kind of story you'd like to share? Something from grad school, as a, something as a teacher. You, you did tell a great story about your, your mentor. I think like another woman that inspired me. Not necessarily, or, just something, I think that so we all have like an event or a, or, or a story, a moment that may stand out in our minds. Sometimes for me, I think about the AIDS era and yeah. or having seen a particular show. I mean, I saw Mike Kelly's show in New York once. I just thought it was like the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, anything that maybe comes to mind. I think so far as story, I'm not sure this is the kind of story you're looking for, but I think one of my very close friends, there's a something that we do together that it's extraordinary to me. I, this is Leah Versick is, is somebody who it's like she's a sister from another mother. And I'll never forget, we were, I was, I joined Lisa Koken's critique group. You know, it was, it was a paid thing that we all came together at Lisa Koken's studio and I remember when she walked in the room, I didn't know her, she walked in the room and it was like this electric bolt that hit my heart. I, she barely said anything. And it was like, I knew this was somebody that I was gonna be in my life. Mm -hmm. And it turned out she lived like right down the street from me. So we started, you know, commuting to Lisa Koken's critique groups and I started to just fall in love with her as a friend. Yeah. And then she then went to, uh, she applied to grad school at San Francisco State. And I thought, you know, if she can do it, I can do it. And I was, I've always wanted, you know, having three kids was like Herculean yeah. for me. And, but I always wanted to do grad school. And she gave me courage. And she's also somebody who's a really good listener who listened and so I ended up in grad school a year behind her at San Francisco State, and our studios were right next to each other. Yeah. And she's just somebody that, you know, we go on these adventures together. We'll just make an appointment at a gallery, like during COVID, and we'll go on these wild adventures and just, you know, I'll notice something on the street and point it out to her, and we'll stop or we'll talk to somebody, and we go on to another art event, like... There's this symbiotic thing that happens between us that's really uh, a gift to my heart. And we both walk away totally uplifted and just saying thank you to each other. And then when I got this studio, because I was working here with the Volkes family and I was helping to clean out Anne's studio and taking care of Pete's old chemicals. And I started to envision like, wait, I could have this whole studio. But then I realized, no, I want Leah in my mm -hmm. studio with me. And I want Maya C Cabot in my studio too. Mm -hmm. And so Leah is now again in, my, in the studio with me. Yeah. We're sharing space. And so we try and be here together every Sunday. Mm. So, uh, you know, my wow. story is around a relationship and somebody yeah. who has really inspired me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I want to jump back a little bit, though, also to to being a mother and three children. And I could be mistaken, but I get the impression that maybe they're close together. Mm. Are they close in age? Yeah, they're two years, the first two or two years, and then four years apart. That's pretty close in age, I think. You know? It felt like yeah. it was really close. It felt like taking a sip out of a fire hose. Yeah. What was I thinking? <laughs> this is hard. How did you balance that with, with wanting to work and, or, or, you know, do your artwork, even your journals, you know, your sketchbooks? How did, how did that go for you? We can draw anywhere. Yeah. You know? I tried to put them to work early, you know, make your, make your own lunch, mm-hmm. do your own laundry at 10. But I was still very involved with them. And I was lucky to be working from home. So I had, you know, my garage. I just pulled some furniture together to make a wall. And I took community college classes, so I had access to a kiln. Actually, it's the community college, Diablo Valley College, where I am still, where I'm teaching. Ah. So I learned a lot from the people I'm working under now. But I, you know, I, I remember the reason I got into clay, because I was, I was somebody who did a lot of drawing yes. initially. And I thought, I can't keep this up. You know, I was working in oils, and it just wasn't wasn't working with kids. So I thought, I can give a kid a piece of clay Mm -hmm. and then I can work next to them. Well, that didn't really work because their attention span is so short, but I fell in love love with clay. (laughs) And I could still bring them in to do stuff with me. You know, I would say that making art for me kept me sane as a parent. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people probably feel like, oh, you can't make art anymore. That was the opposite for me. And I was doing a lot of narrative work about being a woman during that time. I was doing these figures of of women with boats on their heads or Mm. boats crashing across their chest or teetering on things. So there was a lot of that kind of storytelling in the work itself. Makes me curious, what did the boat, what was the boat for you? Not being in control. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this sense that the boats should never have oars. Mm-hmm. And it was a little dinghy mm-hmm. that was, they weren't steamships. They were small uh, skiffs, mm-hmm. you know, with no oars. And I had the sense that I did not always have control. And that wasn't, you know, this illusion in America that you can do everything. Well, that I found out doesn't work. And I think, you know, I didn't have tons of shows at that point, but that's okay. I I feel like I put a lot of time into my my kids say they, they, you know, I was their first teacher kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't perfect. I mean, I did, I did, you know, fumble, but I, I worked as hard as I could. And I ended up, you know, my ex and I ended up uh, becoming fa- facilitators for parenting classes through mm-hmm. the county. And that kind of helped me learn how to become a parent in a better way. And also how to juggle everything, you know, like, you know, you do the best you can. But my artwork really sustained me mm-hmm. um, as a parent. Mm-hmm. And I would mm-hmm. draw my kids. You know, there's a lot of drawings of my children. And mm-hmm. so, and they're amazing people now. I'm just like, and two of them, you know, are definitely artists. Yeah, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was the right thing. It does sound, <laughs> I mean, you just, you sound like a really wonderful so, person. It's fun that they're <laughs> like, they're dancers. And that's so interesting to me. It's, it's an art of the body. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else that you want to share 
you want to talk about Mercury 20? Oh, Mercury 20 was amazing. Yeah, we started it as Robert Tomlinson had a furniture shop on Grand Avenue. And um, I think uh, the furniture shop wasn't making enough money or something. And so he had this idea to bring together a bunch of artists to show their work. And we would put our money together and have a gallery slash furniture store. Well, the furniture store didn't la last and neither did Robert Thomas Tomlinson. He ended up backing out, but we all stayed together, 20 of us. And we rented this storefront that was kind of shabby, gross old rug. And, but we, we made it happen. Every month we would have a show. We fixed everything. We would, you know, oh, we need lights. We'd say, oh, we need lights. Everybody come together. Let's pass a hat and get money for you know, new lights. Yeah. So we really pulled together. I would say, you know, and people would have temper tantrums. I mean, <laughs> I've seen the full gamut. And we kind of grew up a bit mm. together in all that pain and good stuff and bad stuff. And I know I was always like, I'm mean, kind of a doer. So I would take on too much. <laughs> but, you know, I was always thinking, we can't have these group shows. We need to curate this. We can't have work so close together. Let's, you know, let's have the show open for six weeks. Let's only have one artist in the show at, you know, at a time. And people were really kind of, we went back and forth. But then our rent went up and we decided, well, we can't pay this. Let's move on. And so that was a real shakeup. I just want to ask real quick, what year are we talking? 2006. Mm-hmm was when we started, and, and it, we, it was strictly 20 people. And, you know, it was curated. We would curate who came in. You know, we didn't want necessarily somebody that was just a weekend, you know, artist that was knitting, you know, covers for a Kleenex box type and calling it art, you know. So there was, there was a curation to some extent. And some of us really hung in there. And it's, it's funny how always in any group, it's like 10 or 20% of the people become the people who make it happen and do the work. And those are the people that are still my really close friends. Mm -hmm. And when we moved, we started looking around and I took on, I took a big bite of really doing a lot of work of finding a new location. Mm -hmm. And I forget how we found it, but we were going to be looking because Mercury, you know, Mercury 20 was kind of one of the, you know, first galleries. There was just a few and 25th Street had a broken down old barn that was like an auto shop and it was mm. gross, dirty, rat infested, <laughs> you know, really disgusting. And I remember Vessel Gallery signed on to this space mm -hmm. on the upstairs. And Lonnie signed. And as soon as Lonnie signed, because we were in negotiations, I was in negotiations with the lawyers, the, with the people that owned the, the building. And as soon as we saw that Lonnie signed, we're going to sign. We got to sign. So I went into full negotiations with the building uh, owners and the lawyers. I kind of haggled that price and everything. And then I worked on the build out and submitted a grant to the city Mm -hmm. to get half our money back. Because at that point, the city was really kind of in dire straits with a lot of empty storefronts. Mm -hmm. And they had a program that you could grant to get half your money back on your build-out. So I did that. Great. And, you know, I didn't do it alone. I, I had the help of 
all my other teammates. Yeah. And we pulled it off. And, you know, for me, it was really important. And I know it was important for a lot of the other artists in the group to make it look like a gallery and not look like a shop Mm -hmm. and not have work on top of each other to really make it look like, you know, a white-walled gallery. Yeah. So, and the the gallery has really grown up. Mm -hmm. You know, we had monthly meetings and it's just become a stellar gallery where you don't, you walk in and you don't realize it's a collective and that's beautiful, you know, and I just feel really proud, like a mama proud over Mercury 20. And every time I go to openings there, it's like, not everybody's still there as the practicing artists in the group, Mm -hmm. but we all still come together there. Nice, And it's just, it's a gift. I hope Mercury 20 can continue. You know, it's been around a long time. Yeah. I'm so glad you talked about that because I was curious about Mercury 20. So I'm glad we came back to that. Anything else? Uh, anything. Anything. Gosh. Anything. I'm here to, to listen. <laughs> so if there's anything you want. On the topic of listening, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, my turn to listen. Yeah. Or our turn to listen. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think, I think the one thing I would want to emphasize, like to even artists who are just graduating, to find your tribe, to find the people that understand your work or that work you love and invest in their lives and give back to them Mm -hmm. and listen to them and find a way to get, even if you don't have a studio, make a corner of your bedroom that will always be a place of refuge that you can make and leave a little mess. (laughs) And even if you're not making, just go, just go organize you know, just get in that space. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I do as a practice is I always have a book. I use, I use this in my drawing classes too, where you get a book that, you know, it's an old, like this one is The Work of Art. And it's, it's lectures that were written, I think at Harvard or something by some artist. And just, I always have the book open and ready to just put paint in, splash around, highlight words, burn it, you know, burn holes in it, sew in it, just whenever you have extra paint or when you're stuck, you know, or or I'll just lay down some gesso and smash the book together, peel it apart, let that dry, Mm -hmm. put more paint on it, just splash around and not judge, make and not judge. So I think Mm -hmm. that's really important to have some kind of practice where you even if it's just cutting out pieces of paper and gluing them together, you know, just have something that you can turn to, to really play. Because mm-hmm. for me, play and experimentation is a really big part of what I do. Mm-hmm. And we forget how to play, mm-hmm. you know, and we forget how to sing and we forget how to draw. You know, those are all things we forget how to dance. Those are all things you did as a child and someone came along and judged you and you know, and I think everyone can draw, you know. If they, everyone can draw. I totally agree. If you put makeup on, you can draw. You know, like, like, <laughs> you know this drawing, you know, that's it's great. It's a mark-making Yeah, practice. mark So I just think have a mark-making practice of some sort or have Play-Doh in your, you know. Yeah. Does this have a, it, it seems like it has a fragrance. Does it? I think it does. It's probably mold. Mold. <laughs> oh, well, it does smell like book, not mold. It smells like an old book. There's a there's a mild perfume though. When really? you first opened it, yeah. 
Oh, how interesting. Yeah, it was neat. I, was I like, probably can't one. smell it anymore because I don't know because I've been around it. But I have a second, another book started. This one's Where's Annie? And, you know, I've started gessoing this one. But it, it's really a fun practice. I feel really inspired right now to do that. Oh. <laughs> this is not something I've done, but oh my gosh. You know, and just using a wrinkled page is a wonderful gift. Or I'll take really thin pieces of like tissue and then put gel, oh, yeah. put gel medium down mm -hmm. and put the tissue over that and create a texture and then paint on that texture. The yeah. thing is, it's, it's cheap, it's easy, you know, using wax crayons, whatever yes. you can. And don't judge it. Yeah. Just, I remember seeing Ward Schumacher's giant books that he draws in like this. Mm. And, and his are very special. But that was an inspiration, you know, for me to keep doing this practice. But you can see I only have two. <laughs> so, I mean, my sketchbook's that too. Yes, they are. You know, definitely. So I don't know if that's a good ending for it you. Is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. You've been listening to The Oriole. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to be interviewed for the show, please feel free to reach out at theoriolepodcast at gmail.com or send feedback or encouragement to that address. I'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review. It really helps and will ensure that these stories will make it to the ears of those who need to hear them. Thank you for listening.